Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's it like when one of your friends at death row is led away to the hospital? You have a prepaid call from... William A. Sakura. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and reported. I have to be a different Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much, but then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme, so I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out, so that you're... <laughs> Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And today we're going to be discussing the case of John Hinckley Jr. You probably recognize that name. He's the guy that shot Ronald Reagan. He's now... Released from prison unconditionally, he can go and do, go anywhere he wants, do whatever he wants. We'll get into his case in a minute. Uh, first, Bill, we have a listener-submitted question, and we appreciate you guys sending your questions And You can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And if you haven't followed us already on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries, then go ahead and do that. We appreciate it. Our question comes from Onel. I really hope I'm saying that correctly. If not, I apologize. And Onel asks, Bill, what happens in the moments after you're sentenced to death? Does a, a gavel smack the table? What happens? This happened to you. So what is that immediate process like? Well, yeah, it's it's definitely dramatic. And thank you for the question. It's you know, there's a buildup before that gavel hits, and I actually, the first thing that comes out in my book, Escape Artist, is the sentence, and so I'm going to read this to you, to, to the listener, as well as the um, person who asked the question, uh, because it is dramatic, and it's it's everything you think is going to happen in a courtroom as they're reading this sentence. So here it is. It says, the judge says, William Adolph Noguera. It is the judgment and sentence of this court that for the offense of murder you shall suffer the death penalty. Said penalty to be inflicted within the walls of the state prison at San Quentin, California, in the matter prescribed by law. 
that this time to be fixed by this court in a warrant of execution. It is the order of this court that you shall be put to death by the administration of lethal gas. Set penalty to be inflicted within the walls of the state prison of San Quentin, California. You are remanded to the care, custody, and control of the sheriff of Orange County to be by him delivered to the warden of state prison at San Quentin, California. Within 10 days from this date, in witness thereof, I have here unto set my hand as judge of this said superior court and have caused the seal of this court to be affixed hereto. Done in open court this 29th day of January 1988. Signed, Robert R. Fitzgerald, Judge of the Superior Court of the State of California in and for the County of Orange. Good luck to you, Mr. Noguera. That's what he said to me. Remember, I'm an 18-year-old boy when this happens, so of course, when this sentence is read, he slaps that gavel down. It is the most traumatic moment because you don't know what's going to happen. I haven't done I haven't done this before. I didn't know what to expect. But as soon as that happens, there's a rush of emotions. They've just, the state of California has just said, we're going to execute you. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of the legal system at this time. I don't understand what's going to happen. But immediately, I'm in chains, by the way. I am escorted out of that courtroom. My mother's and at that time, my family members were crying in the background. Uh, no one thought that for my first offense, being the first felony conviction, that I would receive the death penalty for this. I'm taken out of the courtroom and immediately separated from everybody else. I am now sentenced to death, so therefore, no one can be around me because I'm supposed to be from one moment being a teenager, and the next moment, I am a monster for all intended purposes. So, as the judge said, I am in Orange County for a few days, and I am flown to St. Quentin, where my journey as, you know, D77200, inmate prisoner convict William A. Noguera, is on death row, and I have been here ever since. But it's very traumatic. It's, uh, it's something that you would have to, I mean, actually read it in the book that I wrote, Escape Artist. It gives a detailed account of what happens after and how being thrown in a cell at the worst prison in the world, how it affects, well, basically a boy. Yeah, and that was about 40 years ago, right? Uh, yeah, 36 years ago. I've been incarcerated nearly 40 years, but yeah, it took place um, in 1988. So yeah, it's been about 36 years. Well, that's really surreal, dramatic. Words can't really describe it i don't know i tend to perceive things through movies through things i've seen in movies because i feel like we've seen that scene probably a dozen times you know just from watching tv and whatnot but i mean was there an element of disbelief or did you just immediately say well here's the situation i gotta cope with it in the immediate well, it took it took several it took several days for me to basically digest what was going on because I mean every time when I was in that cell by myself, every time I heard a set of keys, I thought they were coming from me. So I jumped to the bars and squeezed the bars as hard as I can. Yeah, I was very scared. I mean, this is this was not a joke. They were trying to kill me, and um, I had to make up my mind that I was going to somehow, some way, survive the situation. And I have, but it hasn't been easy. Let me call right back.
Yeah. So thanks for that question. We appreciate it. You know, Bill, on our Patreon episode next week, we're actually answering several questions that we just can't really answer on our general feed, just not really fit for public consumption. Have you enjoyed the Patreon episodes that we've done so far? Yeah, I thought that they've been pretty good. You know, we've been able to play around a little bit, kind of have fun. Hopefully the audience has liked it. But yeah, I, I like it, and especially all these questions. Now that it's kind of a secret, I'm dying to, to know what it is you're going to ask me, what they've been asking. You know, um, so yeah, I've enjoyed it, and it's going to be fun to to get hit with all these crazy questions. Because by the way, Matt never tells me what these questions are prior to him asking me, so he gets me kind of unaware to get me to respond in a way where sometimes I'm going to stick my foot in my mouth. Yeah, for sure. I like I like tripping you up a little bit because you usually are are prepared and you know you're a pretty diligent guy. But uh, you know I can screw with you a little bit and I enjoy that. So if you want to check that out and that kind of stuff, uh, we have a lot of really cool bonus episodes and and content that's only available on Patreon. And you know it's just a way to help support the show give a couple dollars a month and it's it's just something for our loyal listeners and we appreciate it if you want to check it out that's at patreon.com slash death row diaries so an interesting segue based on what you were talking about earlier john hinckley jr unlike yourself you're roughly the same age he's out and about doing whatever he feels like running to the trader joe's and whatnot this is an interesting case. Do you remember? You must remember when this happened. I was too young, but you must remember when John Hinckley Jr. shot Ronald Reagan and Brady and a couple other people. Yeah, it was. I was yeah fairly young. I was um, yeah I was fairly young. I was I believe seventeen, eighteen years old when it happened. So yeah, it was big news. It's Ronald Reagan, and this clown out of nowhere steps out and shoots shoot six times and you know at first no one knows what's really going on with this guy why he did it however as time went on we begin to learn the details about who this guy is what he's done why he's done it and that's what gets really weird the reasons he says he did this and then of course when he is acquitted of all charges based on this insanity plea that was ridiculous, everybody really chimed in on this guy. So that's John Warnock Hinky. Uh, and as we progress the episode and we start talking about financial situations, you'll understand why he was able to, well, basically get away with what he did. And I'm sorry about her yelling in the background. It seems that they can avoid the microphone when they're around it. But, so yeah, this this is a very interesting case. It really, it's going to piss some people off because of, you know, really money talks and bullshit walks in this country. And this is a perfect example of a guy who basically attempted to murder a sitting president. He stopped the prior president. And then when he tries to kill him, he tries, he basically attempts to murder three other uh, members of Reagan's circle, which are Secret Service agents, a, of course, Brady, the, the secretary, 
and of course the press secretary, and then of course an officer of the law. So you have four attempted murders, and one happens to be the president of the United States. And as Matt has mentioned, uh, this guy's out now. Yeah. So when we talk about money and privilege in this country, when people say rich or wealthy, a lot of time, I think they don't really know what that means. I mean, money, once you make a certain amount, it behaves in a different way. And you have certain privileges that, that no one else does and things that you don't have to worry about ever that, that most people do. So when you say his family was rich or wealthy, that means they were loaded, all right? His father was the president of an energy company in Texas, um, connections to the Bush family, the whole nine. And so... In well, it, it goes beyond that. It, it really does. I mean, just to say it that way, you kind of get a glimpse of what this guy was about. But So let me be more specific. His father was the president of Vanderbilt Energy Corporation. So that may raise your eyebrow, but let's go further. His family are the owners of Hinkley Oil. Okay? Hinkley Oil is owned by the family of this clown. He's got connections to the Bush family, which are, by the way, President Bush. He has connections to political figures in other countries. His father is not only loaded in money, his family is, but they're politically powerful people. So what that means is that if you and I get arrested for this crime, they're not going to wrestle us to the ground. They're going to shoot us right there. And when we get put in prison, we're not going to go to a, a nice, posh hospital so you can spend your time singing songs. You're going to go to a federal penitentiary where they're probably going to whoop your ass seven days a week. Yeah. A quick aside, can you get your hands on a guitar in San Quentin? Because, man, you got so much time, so much time. I would think eventually you could get pretty good at it. Hinkley sucks. He's terrible. Have you heard his music? No, I haven't heard his music. But, yeah, to answer your first question, is, yeah, you can – in prison, you can order an instrument, an instrument to play. It's not going to be you know, a Gibson freaking guitar, but it's going to be you know, a serviceable guitar that you can play. And But some people have it and some people don't. I mean, Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix, they, they never took lessons. They just – it was born inside of them. This guy, Hinkley, from what you say, sucks. Oh, yeah, he's objectively just – He's terrible and very derivative, and he he has this f very flattened affect, which is characteristic of kind of a a psychopath, but also someone who's maybe on a lot of meds. But uh, I don't know. It's, where should we start with his? So he's from this rich family. He's hanging out in Dallas, very kind of weird Dallas aristocrat, giant cowboy hat type of thing. Um, and eh, he's not a popular kid. He kind of, he's kind of just a bum, except, except he's a rich bum, which we have plenty of in LA still to this day. But, uh, of course he goes to LA at some point. I mean, you have to, if you're a rich bum, right? Well, yeah, you know, he, yeah, he's not, he's not stupid, but he, search the imagination. He, you know, he graduates from high school. He attends um, Texas Tech University. And then he decides that, yeah, of course, he, you know, 1975, he wants to pursue a songwriting career. Bad move, but 
he does so. He goes to L.A. And right here is we start getting a glimpse. We start getting a glimpse of this guy's mental states. And look, before everybody gets up in arms about Bill being, he's bullying, uh, you know, mental health people and stuff. Look, I, I get it. I'm just here to state facts, so don't take insult to me talking the way I do about a guy like this because, you know, it kind of bothers me that what happened with this guy. So he goes to L.A. and he tries to become a songwriter. Sound familiar, ladies and gentlemen? Charles Manson did the same thing. You know, I'm going to L.A., got to be a songwriter. Doesn't work out. And what does he do? Well, let's start killing people. So this, this clown is in L.A., he begins to date a make-believe girl. So, I'll repeat that. He starts to date a make-believe girl. The girl doesn't exist. He tells his parents he's dating this girl named Lynn Collins. She doesn't exist. So, after a few months, he returns home. After a couple of years, he returns home. He's not doing well. He begins to uh, feel paranoid. He starts collecting weapons. He starts taking antidepressant pills. And he is now, uh, this, he has this borderline situation where he watched the movie Taxi. You know, everybody knows what movie that is. It's Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster. And he's obsessed with Jodie Foster. This is his thing. So he begins to just write her. He starts to stalk her, actually. That's what he starts doing. That's how his, this, this whole episode starts, is with him stalking a very young Jodie Foster, or her character from the movie Tax. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Which is weird as hell. Yeah, it gets really convoluted. Um, and it, it's obviously the thoughts of a crazy person, but he's essentially identifying as the Robert De Niro character in the movie Taxi Driver with a lot of different, you know, variables or whatever. But the point is, he's stalking Jodie Foster in real life as the Travis Bickle character kind of did in the movie Taxi Driver. Yeah, no, but he takes this thing to a whole different level, which we're going to discuss later in terms of how this affects a person's brain in the long run. The deal is that he learns that Jodie Foster is attending Yale University. So this clown, because he has the financial means... He goes to that same town with her where she's at, New Haven, and he stalks her there. He sends her letters, he sends her poems, he repeatedly calls her. And when that fails, his next move, again, we've, you know, we've gone over this before with other people, Charles Manson, he decides to impress Jodie Foster by deciding to, okay, I'm going to kill the president. So what does he do? He begins then, at that time, the president was Carter. So he starts going from state to state, and he's basically stalking the president in order to impress this girl. 
And in Nashville, he makes a mistake, and they charge him, they arrest him for possession of firearms. So it kind of throws out his plan to go after to go after the President of the United States. He returns home, he's suffering, according to him, to mental issues, and as time goes on, and his parents support, he decides then to start studying the assassination plots of JFK. And this is where, you know, this is that obsessive TikTok mentality that he is, I mean, I mean TikTok, meaning TikTok, TikTok, a time bomb. And he then focuses on the newly elected President Reagan. He decides, this is the guy I'm going to get. This is what's going to get me the girl that I want. And he writes this, this poem or this thing to Foster. And he says that he calls this the greatest love offering in the history of the world, meaning that he's going to assassinate somebody for her. That's how bent this guy is. Yeah. Yeah. He, he thinks that she's going to be really impressed with this. How much of this is a ruse? I mean, I think he is obsessed with Jodie Foster, was, probably still is. We'll get to that later. Uh, is this just an excuse to kill the president, or what do you think's going on in this guy's head? No, I think this guy suffers from serious mental issues. I, and I think they're organic brain damage. I don't think you can fix this with antidepressants. I don't think you can fix this problem. So, yes, he has serious psychotic episodes, he doesn't know how to distinguish between reality and, you know, fantasy. He doesn't know what the difference is. He, he's, he's identifying with a he's identifying with a character on the movie screen played by Robert De Niro, and he believes he's this guy Travis. You know how in, in the movie Travis played, uh, actually attempts to assassinate a government uh, agent a government official. So he's doing the same thing the guy in the character is, and I don't think this is fake, I don't think this is some other plot by the Russians. This is this guy, Hinckley, just being who he is, which is a very mentally disturbed person. It should not be out, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't think it should be out either. I think it's objectively insane that he's just walking around right now. Um, so... You can speak to this. What was the attitude toward mental illness at this point, especially because he's from this very influential family? I mean, clearly they knew he was insane, but to what degree? I mean, this guy is dedicating his entire existence to, like, stalking presidents and actresses and trying to kill them, I think. So... How did this yeah, not ring a few question. bells? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, very, it's, it's easy to do this in hindsight. We say, well, look, you know, these signs are there. Because we see the Ovaldi shooting. We know the signs are there. He's putting things on Facebook. He's putting things on his other accounts and social media. We didn't have those things in those days. So how much does his parents know? You know, we really don't know. Because sometimes, you know, parents want to think of their sons in the best light. And although they, I'm sure they knew he had mental issues, they probably never believed that he would turn violent. Although having all those guns would have been, you know, a kind of a red flag for anybody. But again, parents, it's, it's very difficult to, um, to to judge your child thinking he's going to do something that's crazy. And of course, he was 
take an antidepressant. So he's under the, the care of a psychiatrist. Did he hide that from the psychiatrist? Did, did he have these plans? Probably. But look, sure enough, when he realizes that Jodie Foster is not, uh, you know, enthralled by him or totally taken by his stalking mechanisms or his stalking methods, and he is, you know, basically thrown to the side and she refuses to answer. I think there's even a restraining order at one point. He decides, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to impress her by giving her the biggest sacrifice or offering of love in the world, which is to kill somebody. And he does exactly that. And it, it happens at the at a hotel in Washington, D.C. And basically the President of the United States steps out with his, uh, his Secret Service agent. He has a press secretary with him, James Brady. And Hinkley steps out with a small caliber um, gun, handgun, and he fires. He fires six times, hitting, um, first he hit uh, Thomas uh, Delahanty, an officer, uh, at law enforcement. He hits second uh, Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy. He hits the press secretary, James Brady. And the president is actually not hit directly. He is hit by a ricochet that pierces his lung and comes within centimeters of killing him. Uh, Hinckley is tackled, thrown to the ground. Um, the president doesn't know that he's hit. I remember this clearly. And they rush him off into the car. They realize he's been hit and he's taken to the hospital. Of course, we know that President uh, Reagan survived this situation. So Hinckley's arrested. Of course, immediately his family's hired some of the best lawyers in the country. And they immediately argue this defense, which is mental illness, that he was um, psychotic, that he was obsessed with stalking uh, Jodie Foster, that the movie Taxi influenced him in such a way that having the brain damage that he had and the mental illnesses he had, that he could not stop himself. And that was the defense. Now, during his trial, and again, we're talking about a first-rate defense. We're not talking about a bunch of yahoos here. These guys are equivalent to the O.J. Simpson case in terms of the star power Hall of Fame team that he had defending him. And of course, they do what they're supposed to do. The jury comes back after a long trial and they find him not guilty by reason of insanity. So what does that mean? So he's found not guilty, but, he, but because of reasons of insanity, he is then placed in a hospital. And now this is not an ordinary hospital. This is St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the, it's a mental institute. This is a as, as plush as you can get. This is a beautiful facility for the rich and famous. This is where, if you're a billionaire, this is where you're going to go. And that's where he is at for the next several decades. Um, but as Matt, you and I have discussed it a couple times, what happens there is very telling in terms of privilege. So he's not dealing with Mexican mafia guys trying to shank him or anything like that. No, this guy is in a beautiful little room. He has, you know, his parents are, are always doting on him. He has everything he needs. He eats 
star f- food that's, that we can only wish about. Hell, he probably is better than you do. And it is, it's working towards one thing, to get him out, and he has a team. But once a person in that situation, if it were you or I, or any of our listeners, and this is a few billionaires out there, and if you are listening, they really need some money, but <laughs> I'm playing around. But seriously, this this guy has a team of lawyers, and all they're dedicated to doing is to winning this case by getting him out. Because they're arguing he was found not guilty. So if we can prove that his mental state has changed, or as they put it, it's gone into remission, he should be let out. And that's what they're working for. for this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. For all these decades, that's what they're working at. Yeah, the judge that just released him used that term, and I don't know if it went back further in the legal de- uh, defense or the appeals or whatever. But when I hear that, like when I read it, it gave me pause because I thought remission, huh? Because people have cancer that's in remission, and then it comes back, right? So if it's exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that seems very troubling to me because this dude. So you can't cure this kind of mental illness. This guy's still insane. And he was deeply, deeply insane. Uh, Like, I uncovered an article here after the shooting. And this was after he had been in the hospital. And and he says, My actions of March 30th, 1981 have given special meaning to my life. And no amount of imprisonment or hospitalization can tarnish my historical deed. The shooting outside of the Washington Hilton Hotel was the greatest love offering in the history of the world. I sacrificed myself, I'm almost done, and committed the ultimate crime in hopes of winning the heart of a girl. It was an unprecedented demonstration of love. But does the American public appreciate what I've done? Does Jodie Foster appreciate what I've done? Doesn't anyone understand? He keeps going. Mind you, he'd already been... Uh, you know, sentenced at this point, there's no, there's no motivation for him to pretend to be insane. Now you could say that was a long time ago and it was, but doesn't that give you an idea of what we're working with? Oh yeah. No, anybody with two cents would, but remember we're, we're dealing with a family who has political power, has the money, the attorneys. And of course, when you have political power, you also have people in the judicial system who will listen to you. And that means judges as well, federal judges. So you have to understand what that means. So let's, let's take a look at that. So here we go. In 1984, because of his defense and because he won, there was a public outcry to change these not guilty verdicts by reason of insanity. So they came up with a thing called the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 19... 19- this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. They changed the law because of Hinckley, because he basically got away with trying to kill four people and got an insane verdict. So they changed it. The Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 was enacted because of Hinckley. So he goes to prison and, as you see, starts writing all this crazy stuff. So, of course, his lawyers are not stupid. His family's not stupid. They know he's going to be in there a while. But it's going to take time for people to forget, for Ronald Reagan to get out of office, for that to kind of pass. People begin to forget. The United States has a, a resilient ability to forget some of the past. 
especially if money's involved. So this guy, his attorneys began to really push the issue in, um, in the 1990s. They start petitioning different judges asking for home visit consideration. Now, now think about that. He's asking for home visit with his family. And he gets a judge who is not very swayed by all this. I have been rehabilitated. I'm like my, uh, my mental illness is in remission. So he said, okay, well, I'll give you a shot. But he orders his room search at the facility where he's at. And what do they find, Matt? Get this. After they, they search the room, the judge finds letters to Jodie Foster, still obsessed with her. And we're talking, this is now a good 15 years after the kind times committed. He finds letters that he's exchanged with serial killer Ted Bundy. Okay? He has tried to contact Charles Manson. Of course, why is Charles Manson this? Well, uh, one of his girls from, uh, Lynette from, she tried to assassinate President Ford, remember? So he's looking for people that understand him, people that kind of understand this obsessive mental condition he has, or whatever, or at least kindred spirits. When the judge sees all this stuff and photographs of Jody Foster and all this crazy stuff, he denies the petition. So his lawyers thought, shit, okay. Most attorneys said, look, this is not going to work. This guy is the same guy. In the interest of society's safety, let's not pursue this. Well, his lawyers are different. Money talks. So they begin to work on other judges. And it's the same thing. They begin to push, same push. He's no longer a threat. He's a good guy. He needs help. His parents living at home would be the best thing for him. And, you know, sure enough, in 2005, a judge rules that he can visit his parents' home for three nights. And they grant that. In 2007, the judge grants 10 days of visiting to his family home. In 2011, the family pays a forensic uh, psychologist to testify that he is recovered. His mental illness is in remission. He poses no intimate danger to himself or others. In 2013, the judge orders him he can go to his home for 30 days. And it just continues. In 2015, the judge orders 40 days, unsupervised. In 2016, the judge rules there's no threat to society, but he, he gives him a bunch of rules. He can't drink, he can't have firearms, he can't have pictures of Jodie Foster, he can't contact the Reagan family or the or the Brady family or the Fosters. He can't contact their agents. He can't watch violent television shows. He can't watch porn. He can't speak to the press. I mean, these are the kind. I mean, what are we really... I mean, are they serious? These are the restrictions? Hell, a guy in state prison has more restrictions when he goes on parole. 
this guy's basically being let out, and that's what they do. He's let out. And this is a guy who has mental illness. His defense was that he was insane. So now, because of money, because of privilege, because of wealth, because of political power, he is out on the streets now. Everybody, within reason, deserves a second chance. I'm an advocate for it, but when you have a guy with this type of mental obsession and problems, look, I don't know about you guys, but I'm thinking, not a good idea. Let me call back. Yeah, I mean, this is totally insane. This is happening right now as we speak. This story is sort of unfolding. If you talk to someone who went into a time capsule in 1989 and told them that this dude was just getting released to go play concerts or whatever, you'd say, well, that's impossible. Because, you know, in this country, if he had just shot a couple of uh, average guys or whatever, no one would notice this. But we make, you know, special stipulations there's like a huge stigma for lack of a better word against trying to kill the president usually those people have the book thrown at them and they never get out of anywhere yeah no, absolutely and, and look and i was just thinking when you were talking about that i was actually thinking i don't remember what maybe you know more about history but if you remember when when uh president John F. Kennedy was killed. His brother was assassinated to the Attorney General. And I believe he was killed by um, this guy, Sirhan, correct? Yes, Sirhan, Sirhan. Okay, so the Kennedys, the, the, the Kennedy he killed was the Attorney General. Not a president, not a governor, not a senator. And Sirhan, Sirhan is still in prison. He's never gotten out. The difference is, Sirhan has no money. Now, he did kill, he did kill a person, but Hinckley attempted to murder the president, he, he attempted to murder the press secretary, attempted to murder a law enforcement officer, he attempted to murder a secret service agent. Um, I'm kind of balancing this out in terms of how we look at things, how many points for certain things, Trying to att attempting to kill four government officials and one being the president of the United States seems to weigh, in my book, about as much or even more so than a person who killed the attorney general, which, of course, is still horrible. What I'm saying is if Sir Hanser Han is still in prison because he's got mental issues, because he, he killed a government official, then a person like Hinckley, who was admitted to having mental issues, his issues in court, his mental defense was based on insanity, it kind of evens out that maybe he shouldn't be out either. And why I bring that up is because it points again to wealth and privilege. Yeah. Plus, you could argue he kind of did kill Press Secretary Brady because, you know, he was really seriously wounded and eventually he died as a result of being seriously wounded by this guy. Um, Correct. Also, the only reason he didn't kill any of them, for the most part, was just because he had a really crappy gun. I mean, he fully intended to kill them. I, I understand, obviously, we make a distinction between attempted murder and murder, but... 
if you're just looking at you know looking at it kind of as i would think a judge would look at it it's like he was trying to execute this mass murder and he just kind of didn't do a great job he kind of got lucky actually well i mean so let's look at another case um squeaky from she attempted to kill the president as well she was not successful I don't believe that Squeaky Fromm was one of the members of the Manson family who murdered Sharon Tate. Am I correct? Right. And she's still in prison. So, same crime, attempted to murder a president, except she didn't try killing the press secretary, a law enforcement officer, a secret service officer. So, in my opinion, if you look at Kinkley and we look at things in terms of what's fair, Hinkley has the same crime as Fraun. He's out. It's just, it's very clear to me that it's because he has money who his family is. If Squeaky Fraun had that kind of money, she'd probably be out too. Which really, I'm sure the listeners are thinking like, huh, why is that? Well, because in this country, ladies and gentlemen, we still, you know, there's a lot of things made of racism and that People of color, black, Hispanic, whatever, are getting raw deals. I, I tend to argue that it's poverty. Poverty doesn't have a color. But if you are a person without money, you're going to get the worst sense and the judicial system basically has its way with you. If you have money, it doesn't matter what color you are. Money is the, the green, is the, is, the, is the prejudice. If you have it, you get it. If you don't, you don't get it. And a perfect example is O.J. Simpson. He's an African-American, ladies and gentlemen. He's accused of killing two people. Everybody in their right mind probably can argue he, you know, he, he did it. But because he had money, he had influence, he's playing golf in Florida right now. Now look, I'm the first person to say, look, if you beat the system, you beat the system. You, they, you play by their rules and you beat them at their rules. But we can't ignore the fact that Money, wealth, influence has everything to do with this. And this particular case of Hinckley is as clear as day. Yeah, no matter how good your lawyers are, I there just shouldn't be a path for this guy to be getting out. You know, he's also do you know any do you you know mentally ill guys in prison, obviously, right? Sure. Do any of them have, when I look at him, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a, not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist. But when I watch his YouTube videos, he never smiles. He kind of leers at, at the camera and he's either really narcissistic or he's just very confident, like more so than I would think an old obese criminal would be. Um, I think he's angry. I see that. Do you know any guys like that that just have, that you can just kind of feel an anger off of them? Well, yeah, no, absolutely. Those guys in prison don't have mental issues and you can feel their anger. It, it, it's clear as day. But it's actually interesting you say that because society, you know, we, we look at people with mental problems, and especially more so nowadays, that there's all these mental health issues that it's okay to that it's okay to admit that you had a, a mental episode, that, you know, some of the Olympic uh, gymnasts, or one of them in particular, 
uh, said that she didn't want to compete because uh, mentally she wasn't uh, there completely. She's having a, a moment. And, and look, I understand that. She, she, she wasn't out there murdering people, but she needed some time off. And, and I agree with that. Sometimes the stress, the, the exhaustion of being a performer at that level, physical or whatever, uh, you have moments and you need that moment to, to get away. But that's different from a person who suffers from a mental uh, problem that enacts or manifests its way in a violent manner. And, and, and I, this guy's in prison. A lot of convicts are prejudiced to people with mental issues because we, they're unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to do. They're, they're fine one moment, and the next day they're completely off the rocker, and you never can tell. And I know they have all these mental ex- experts here running around talking about, oh, this guy's okay. We've talked to him. We've had one-on-one with him. You can't tell. When someone has a mental problem, you cannot tell when it's going to manifest. And to, to associate or to compare mental illness to other illnesses is ridiculous. And I'll tell you why, Matt. If I break my leg, they put a cast on it, it heals. My leg doesn't uh, control my behavior. But if I have a mental problem, a mental issue that I've expressed violence or I've expressed different forms or manifest in different forms that cause me to act in a certain way, that affects my behavior. So if you have mental problems and have shown that these mental problems are manifested through violence, your brain is not right. And yeah, they give them medication, but most of the time guys that take medication, when they feel okay, they stop taking it. So they start acting weird again. Mental health issues affect a person's behavior. It is not the same as other illnesses like cancer or a broken leg or other things of that sort. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm getting at with his, I think he's just very confident. I think he thinks he's awesome. I think that he probably still thinks what he did was pretty cool because people know who he is as evidenced by the fact that he's able to sell out a show based on name recognition, that name recognition coming from having attempted to assassinate the president. I mean, you know, he's calling it the redemption tour, but first of all, he's horrible. He can barely play the guitar. He, He can play the guitar. I can't believe he was in there for 30 some years because he can barely play three chords. And then he cannot sing a melody on top of it. So anyone that would want to see him perform is obviously doing it for the spectacle. Congrats. You're a hipster asshole. Way to go. I hope you have a good time at the show taking Instagram photos with your friends and having a good laugh. But uh, by the way, I don't take it that seriously. It's just not something you should want to attend. But just imagine the fact that he's confident enough to think people should hear him sing when he can't actually do it. We kind of see it all the time, don't we? We watch most people watch American Idol for the train wrecks. It's not so popular anymore because you don't have Simon belittling people like. But people like to watch them like that because the train wreck effect. This guy's. Like, I've never watched any of it, but we don't. We're not allowed internet access in prison. But you've been telling me how how bad this guy is. Well, I mean, it's no different than a serial killer. They draw horrible little pictures like John Wayne Gacy, and people pay incredible amount of money for them because the name recognition of this guy being a freak. And that's what John Hinckley is. He's a freak. 
and people are just dying to go there to watch a tree wreck. He also draws terrible pictures, by the way, and sells them. It, it, it's one of those things that drives me nuts because, look, when I first came to St. Quentin and I was you know, drawing and thought staff members were buying my work for you know, pretty good prices, I wanted to distinguish myself from the clowns who were drawing little serial killer stuff, and that's why I, I just kept pushing until I, I was accepted for my merits in a contemporary art gallery. I always sought to separate myself. I never, I've never had a show with other prisoners. You know, it, it's just something that was innate with me. I had to be different. I didn't want to be compared. And look, if I wasn't good enough, I wanted people to tell me, hey, dude, you suck. And I would have crawled back into a little hole and probably tried something else. But these people like Hinckley, who understands two things. At first, because of who he is, people are going to go. And he still has this distorted view of reality. He thinks he's great, but that shows you this, this side of narcissistic behavior, and he's playing with this thing of rea- what's, rea- what's real and what's not real. That should be the biggest sign for any psychiatrist to say, this guy's not right, and at any moment, he can go purchase a gun anywhere, especially, I'm sure there's a few guns near his house where he, he can purchase them or borrow them and do what he wants to do. It's just one of those things that I, I, you have to really weigh this when you let a person like this out, a person who has all these mental issues. And the goal, I mean, the balls to try and assassinate a sitting president of the United States of America. That, I mean, that you kill a, a person, another person, it's horrendous, it's horrific. But to take that leap, it, it takes a certain character to go that far, a sitting president. So we have Jodie Foster. Seems like a nice lady. I like her as an actress. Never hurt anybody. She's sitting around like, okay, he's being released, uh, supervised. Uh, Probably not great, but I can deal with that. I don't want to put words into her mouth, but what is Jodie Foster thinking? This guy could literally drive to her house right now. Yeah, that, I mean... Yeah, that would be a problem for me. I mean, I'm sure Jodie Foster has this guy on her radar. I'm sure that uh, no one would know if this guy looked her up and was obsessing over her again. No one's going to know because there's a way around these things. So, yeah, she's, I would imagine her being a, you know, a good human being, a, a, a woman who has a lot of uh, well, star power. She's very good at her craft as uh, being an actress. Yeah, I would be worried. I definitely would be worried. I mean, look, I was actually thinking about this. And I, I, look, I'm not a comedian, so I'm not trying to be one here, but how big of a blow to this guy's nuts was it when he finds out that she's gay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, I had to answer that one. Seriously, this guy is obsessing about this girl. He's probably thinking, my God, I'm going to marry this woman. I love her. Da, 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 da. Of course, he's nuts. And then later, when he gets in prison, he finds out, oh, my God, she's gay. <laughs> well, maybe it's a cover. Man. And also, you know, she hasn't had great experiences with men, him being part of it. So uh, I'm not going into a nature versus nurture argument here. But, man, this guy. So, mm. all right, what do you think of the concept of house arrest? It seems 
unfair to me because you know i heard this guy went to his mom's house in virginia i thought uh some dumpy old ladies you know two-bedroom apartment or something well yeah i don't know i guess he's roughing it and i thought no wait a minute this guy's this guy's got like eight thousand square feet to himself meanwhile uh, you know, a dude like you or me gets released on house arrest after being in prison for a long time. I don't know where I'm going. A dingy couch somewhere, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I always, I always joke about this, but it's not a joke about it. If I'm someday released, I have to work for the rest of my life. There's no time about I don't have a social security. I don't have a pension plan. And my pension plan is, is Matt's couch. <laughs> I mean, that's my pension plan. I don't know. Yeah, 8,000 square feet. I'd say this guy is really well off. Hopefully, look, I'm in some I'm a pessimist, but let's play the optimist here for a minute. Look, I'm hoping he makes it. I hope he did, and it somehow he doesn't turn by. I hope that he doesn't have these obsessive thoughts. And if he does have them, I'm hoping he takes his medication. He's able to control them because we don't want anybody hurt by this guy or anybody else for that matter. So, yeah, I, it, it's it's one of those things that you, you – I play devil's advocate here uh, and point out what went wrong with the system. But, yeah, I'm hoping that he does well or that it, before he does something that he stopped. That's my biggest concern, and I hope that uh, Jody Foster, of course, has peace of mind, although this guy's out, that – leaves her alone and that, that's the most important part because she's a victim of this thing there's there's no way not to look at it and yes the reagan family and the, the family members of the law enforcement officers were hit they're victims but so is jody foster in this situation because this guy was hunting her and that's not a cool feeling john hinckley's father very influential in texas politics close friends with george H.W. Bush, close friends, uh, frequent dinner guests at the home. They knew each other's children. George H.W. Bush, vice president under Ronald Reagan. If Ronald Reagan is successfully assassinated, who becomes the president? Oh, there's, there's, there's mad at conspiracy theories again, huh? Yeah, you see this guy walking around the house. You know, he's in the separate wing. You know, he's painting a portrait of Jodie Foster. You step in, hey, buddy, what are you working on in there? And, you know, then the <laughs> wheels start spinning. I get your point. I see where you're going with this. Uh, but, yeah, how awkward is that, right? You know, you're the vice president, uh, Bush, and the, the leader of the country is almost assassinated by your one of your best friend's sons. How does that conversation go? Hey, John Hinckley, how you doing there, bud? Uh, right? um, how's your son? I mean, how does that work? I don't even know how you that conversation even starts or ends, but yeah, oh my God. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of irony here. I mean, you're still in prison. You know, fill me in on this, but you're still in prison in part, in part because of the steps Reagan took to keep people in prison for maybe longer than they should be in certain uh, instances, right? Yeah, he was definitely hard on crime. Um, yeah, that was a different time, a different age, and people, you know, politicians always sold that hard on crime stuff, and nowadays we realize that hard on crime just means hard on the taxpayers' wallets. But yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that the guy tried to kill him, assassinate him, he's out running around playing songs at concerts that are being sold out because he's a freak. I'm sure that... Um, 
somewhere on the, uh, somewhere around there that Reagan's family's thinking, what the hell? Yeah, they did issue a statement. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, whatever that is, issued a statement today regarding the unconditional release of John Hinckley Jr., Quote, the Reagan Foundation and Institute is saddened to hear of the decision to unconditionally release John Hinckley Jr., the man responsible for the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, the shooting that gravely wounded three other brave men. Contrary to the judge's decision, we believe John Hinckley is still a threat to others and we strongly oppose his release. Our hope is that the Justice Department will file a motion with the court leading to a reversal of this decision. So... Yeah, maybe there is um, a path to him being, you know, incarcerated or or put back in the institution. I mean, my thoughts are he's going to do something weird in the next uh, two to three months. What do you think? You, you used to bet, right? What's your over under? Yeah, well, they're not going to they're not going to rearrest him unless he does something to break his his parole or the conditions of his parole that the judge put on him. Uh, the judge made a decision. That decision has not been appealed. He will remain released until he does something that will somehow, some way, violate his conditions of his parole. Now, uh, of his release, I mean, he's not on parole of his release. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would say it's going to take longer than that, if at all. But he's a danger, but there's no if and but. They, I hope he remains sane and, and everything goes okay, as I mentioned before. I don't think in two or three months will be something. If he does do something, it'll be between six months to a year. Um, I don't know the guy, so I haven't been able to sit down and study the guy. I only know what I've read about the guy and what happened when I remember in 1981. Um, you know, it's a tragedy that all these things happen behind this guy, and um, I'm hoping that I'm wrong. I'm hoping that the guy does not commit any more crimes and that he just goes away and that his victims um, are able to live, you know, uh, lives free of fear well he's calling this the redemption tour i mean would this redeem him can he redeem himself no no oh, it is only redemption it's not redemption it's hey look at me and i take offense to the, the name using redemption because i have on the 22nd of june um a live interview that i'll be doing and it's called redemption no time to die so I'm taking a little offense to this tour. Maybe we should try and trademark this guy and sue him because we don't want him using redemption because there's, there's no redemption from what he's done. He hasn't um, issued a statement stating that he has done wrong, that he feels terrible, remorseful, all these things that usually come with when you get released with these things. He's not embraced, that he has uh, hurt people, that he is uh, remorseful. None of those things have come up. So... Yeah, redemption. I don't think it's redemption. We saw the letter he wrote about Jody Foster and his his um, room being searched. They found the same kind of paraphernalia, meaning letters of serial killers and all this stuff. Look, I don't think there's any redemption to this. This is just him saying, look at me. That's what it is. So when you use the word redemption in the thing that you're working on, what do you mean by it? I mean exactly that that it's a redeeming quality, but not just for myself or the people that I can affect by talking to them and giving them insights. But my whole position has always been that I do all these talks, I do the podcast, I write books, my art, everything. It's to show people that I had this potential and I blew it at one time in my life. 
But if I can affect a person prior to them committing a problem or committing a, a crime or going down the right wrong path, if I can do that, then there's a redeeming quality to what the experience that I've had. It doesn't justify anything that I've done or not do. What it does is it gives insight into, it gives value to my experience. We all can learn from someone else's experience, being good or bad. My experiences were bad because of my own doing. But I'm hoping that there's value there. So the redemptive value of that is that maybe there's a kid somewhere, some way, he hears me and he thinks, my God, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going down the same path. And look where he ended up. I don't want to do that. And he steps back. That is what all this is about. This isn't about looking at me or anything else. Because as you can tell, and the audience can tell, I have a pretty straight way of talking. I'm conservative in my viewpoints. And I just want to reach one or maybe a thousand people or a million people that didn't change before it's too late. That's what the whole redemption thing is about. It has very little to do with me as a person, more to do with value in my experience and how that experience can translate into helping others. Well, Bill, you're a better man than John Hinckley. I'll always say that if we ever <laughs> just know that. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, yeah, it's a positive words, and uh, it's good to hear that. So I guess I, I got nothing else. Until next time, we'll be back with another story. And until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm willing to go. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.